are still in 1 Corinthians, you're in the right place. If not, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll read just a couple of the verses that we have already read as we come to the Word of God this evening. I'm going to start in verse 17. And I will read the, the verse 20, just a couple of verses. Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? From time to time a question comes up in the minds of Christians, and they ask this kind of a question, will there ever be peace between the church and the world? Might seem a very odd question, but that question is asked. People ask, will there ever be a time when all people or most people will see that the gospel is the truth? Will unbelievers eventually come to understand the relevance of the Bible and notwithstanding their unbelief come to accept the teachings and axioms of biblical revelation? Well, that is a particular teaching known as post-millennialism. This is the teaching that states that the world is going to get better and better and then Christ will return to a, a renovated world where virtually everybody goes to church and virtually everybody believes the Bible, and Christ will then return and reign on earth for a thousand years. You would be surprised at the number of people who embrace that idea. Well, the text that we are studying this evening addresses just that issue it addresses the issue of what the future holds for the gospel. Now, what these verses state is going to be realized in our world until the day that Christ returns. Now, back in March, we looked at verse 17, which is a pivotal verse in the early part of 1 Corinthians. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Paul explains by this verse why he baptized so few. There were people, in particular individuals, whom he had baptized at Corinth, and there were some other people whom he baptized in other places, a, a very small few. 
even when Paul says, I don't know if I baptized anyone else, he's speaking primarily of the Corinthians and people in other places. So uh, Paul, Paul, though an inspired apostle, still had the ability to say that he didn't remember certain things. It doesn't have anything to do with the inspiration of Scripture. It doesn't, it doesn't denigrate from the inspiration of Scripture at all. Well, Paul explains why he baptized so few. And verse 17 is there, and it is also a transition verse in this chapter. It introduces the subject of the following verses. And this is one of the interesting things about reading our Bible, that, that there is a wonderful uh, unity to the scriptures and the flow of the Bible is very natural. So many times you read your Bible and you say, well, I just don't know where to stop because one verse naturally flows to the next. And this verse 17 introduces the subject of the following verses. Paul baptized few because his commission from Christ directed his ministry. It was the will of Christ that directed Paul's ministry. He was not a freelance thinker and a freelance preacher. He was subject to the Lord Jesus, and the Lord Jesus, by his commission, directed Paul's ministry. And what the Lord Jesus told Paul to do as an apostle provided a priority. There were legitimate religious activities that Paul would be engaged in. They were part of gospel ministry, of evangelism, but Paul's commission from the Lord Jesus established a uh, priority between legitimate religious activities, and that is preaching versus baptism. Preaching, says Paul, gets the priority. Not it's not that baptism was bad. It's not that baptism was illegitimate or that baptism was not to be undergone. Now, if you go back and look in the book of Acts at the various passages where Paul's commission is recorded, Acts 9, other passages in the book of Acts, you'll find that uh, these, these statements bear them out. I'm not going to take the time to go back to them, but you can review them and you'll find that indeed Christ called Paul to be a preacher. And uh, he called him to be a preacher rather than to baptize. Now this is, um, this is a figure of speech. I tried to locate the figure of speech in one of my figure of speech books. You have different figures of speech. But what it is, is uh, Paul is using an absolute for a relative he was not absolutely forbidden to baptize, or else he would not have baptized anyone. But uh, he was called to preach, and preaching has the priority. So he is using an absolute, Christ didn't call me to baptize. Well, that's not to be taken absolutely, but relatively. Baptism was a subsidiary activity which did not convey serving, saving virtue. There are people who claim to be Christians who state that baptism saves the Church of Christ. I worked side by side for many years with a man who was part of the Church of Christ, and I asked him, 
Does baptizing save? And he told me, absolutely, yes. Will a man who is never baptized get to heaven? His answer would be, no. I said, well, how did the uh, man on the cross, the thief on the cross, get to heaven then? Because Christ told him, uh, this day you will be with me in paradise. Either he didn't go to heaven or somebody came and baptized, I baptized him when no one was looking. No, no, not at all. Baptism is not a saving ordinance. Baptism certainly does one thing for the person who's baptized. And that's wet them. Gets them wet. That's the certain thing that you, you may know. Well, again, Paul is telling us that, he, that this was not to dominate his service to the Lord. And Paul was gifted to preach. And his commission from Christ, Paul's Lord, was not just a mandate for one activity, preaching. It, it was a mandate for preaching. It also mandated a specific kind of communication. Paul was directed to reject one kind of communication, and that was word wisdom. It's, this is a, in my translation is cleverness of speech. Paul said, Christ did not want him to use cleverness of speech and preaching, but uh, literally word wisdom. And this is the way that uh, you would speak if you were a first century philosopher, word wisdom, uh, to indicate the rhetorical skills that were used. And the Corinthians had people whose professional life was speaking and they believed that if you use the right words with the right tone, people would certainly respond. They were professional convincers. They went around. Some of them were very clever. They would take a position that capital punishment, for example, is wrong. And then they would try and prove that. And then they would turn around and prove the capital punishment was right. And so they were very clever. And people would applaud them for being able to say the opposite things with equal conviction. And uh, that was the philosophical way of speaking in Paul's day, the rhetorical way that men spoke. Well, in contrast to that cleverness of speech, Paul was to convey the truth and claims of the gospel centering in the cross. And you notice how prominently that comes out in our text. Paul says, you have to be careful not to trust in your eloquence, in your cleverness, in your choice of vocabulary, or else what happens? The cross of Christ is made void. Paul was commissioned to convey the truth and claims of the gospel. He was to do it with simplicity. You see, if you don't believe in the gospel, you have to dress it up with something else, just like worship. If you don't love worship, you have to employ something else to make worship better than worship is. And if you're not convinced that the gospel saves you have to dress the gospel up with something else that would save. And that's Paul's point here. He was to speak the gospel with simplicity, with divine authority. As our as brother prayed uh, 
you have to say, thus says the Lord. And that's what Paul was. He was a preacher, a Kerux, God's spokesman delivering God's message. And he had to preach that way. And he had to preach with earnest urgency. Finally, Paul's commission guarded against the danger of nullifying the power of God's gospel. Preaching in word wisdom, that worldly rhetoric would bring men into external identification with something, something like the gospel. But it would not convert Paul's hearers because of the gospel. It would convert people because of eloquence, because of their ability to convince people of something that comes out of their mouth. In either case, what they believe would not be the gospel, and the cross would be a non-factor. You see how Paul states that, that the cross of Christ may not be made void. Because when people were convinced by rhetoric, by fancy words, they would not be believing the gospel. And the glory would certainly not go to the Lord. So now Paul turns to an, explore, uh, an explanatory contrast between the world's wisdom and the gospel. The world's wisdom is what people valued. The gospel is what people despised. And make no mistake about it, the world still despises the gospel and it still despises preaching. There are a lot of people who don't go to church because they say it's one-way communication. I have news for you. It is not. Because the way the people of God receive the word of God, it's at least a two-way communication. Because the people of God are expressing in their posture, in their faces, in their interactions after the sermon, that they have been communicating with the one who is preaching. So Paul turns to this explanatory contrast and um, he does two things. He asserts and demonstrates the failure of gospel despisers. That's the title, the failure of gospel despisers. And he does that in verses 18, 19, and 20. And then he explains why. Now, this, this is this is a critical. If the world despises the gospel, shouldn't you use something else? That's what Paul addresses starting in verse 21. Why still preach the gospel? That's verses 21 to 25. Today, after having raised your expectation, we're going to consider only only the failure of gospel despisers, verses 18 to 20. So here, uh, in these verses, first thing Paul does is he contrasts the word of the cross in the eyes of men and in the purposes of God. This, there's a way that people think about preaching, and there's a way that God thinks about preaching. And that's the contrast that Paul's making. First of all, notice that Men think it is foolishness. That's what people think about the gospel. People devoid of grace think that the gospel is foolishness. 
And Paul minces no words. He doesn't leave you in any doubt. In verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. He says that unbelievers, when they are confronted with the cross, think of it as foolishness. Think about it. It's the gospel, in one sense, is not a flattering word. The gospel declares that men are depraved in nature, that they're born entirely in sin. That's not uh, something that makes you feel good about yourself. And again, let's face it, there are a lot of popular preachers in big churches, I'm not saying all, but many, who make their living by telling people that they have done God a favor and that the most important thing in the world is that they have a high opinion of God. Now, that, that is important, but not in the sense that these preachers do it. They say, well, God values you. You know, God loved you so much that he sent his son to the cross. And that's because you're such a valuable person. And God so intensely wants you to be saved. Now, there's an element of truth in which I'm saying, in what I'm saying. But that's not the message of the gospel. It doesn't start with how valuable a person you are. Now, you are valuable. Don't let me, don't, don't misunderstand me. Because Jesus says, what shall it profit a man? if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul, your soul, your never dying soul is more valuable than all the world. That's, that's what Jesus teaches. But people don't want to insult men. And so they don't tell them the news that they have been born with a <laughs> sinful heart that is wretched, that is programmed for unbelief and destruction. But that's where the gospel starts. Men are depraved in nature and guilty before a holy God. And that holy God is offended. The gospel declares that the death of the Son of God is the one remedy for that condition. On the cross, the God-man died to satisfy the wrath of God against our sin. And it is by trusting in this God-provided, freely-offered remedy that men and women, boys and girls, can be right with God. This is the gospel that is rejected by men. But it is the only one that is faithful to them and is able to save them. Because in the eyes of men, men Think it foolishness. Why do you bother telling me about a Jewish prophet who came to earth and was willing to go to a cross and die there, rejected by his own nation, under the wrath of God? Why do you, why do you tell me this story? People have a lot of different ways to think about the gospel. But the, the bottom line is, they say it is foolishness. Some skirt the issue of the gospel with pilot-like skepticism. And this is one of the major ways in which our generation thinks about the gospel. 
They say, like Pilate, what is truth? Jesus said, I came to bear witness to the truth. Pilate's response is, what is truth? Is there anything really true that we can park our lives on and depend upon for the safety of our never-dying soul? Pilate said, what is truth? He is a postmodern skeptic. Others put it off, like Herod, for a convenient time, a more convenient time. Yes, the gospel is important. I'll, I'll, some other time. You know, I got bills to pay. I got people to see. I got people to care for. But some other time, maybe. I'll listen to your gospel. I'll think about it. Many people are outspoken in their unbelief and rejection. So, if you are a Christian, don't be surprised at the attitudes of the world. Don't be surprised when someone tells you, when you're speaking the gospel to them, your great learning has driven you mad. You're a crazy man. They call Jesus crazy. They call Paul crazy. And they may call you crazy. Some try to sit on the fence. Again, it's very postmodern. Well, I don't want to say that anyone shouldn't believe what they would like to believe. You want to believe that Jesus died and rose again? That's fine for you. I just don't believe it myself. So they try to sit on the fence and make it sound as if oh, it's okay for you. That makes you feel better. That saves your conscience. That gives you hope and comfort. Not me. That's the relativism of our age. It all goes for one in the eyes of God, though. With all these, the issue is the same. They may say it doesn't make sense in, the mind, in our minds. It has no intellectual appeal. It doesn't fit in with the conventional wisdom of the day. And it should not be, it should not be surprising to us that people take that attitude. Because Jesus said, narrow is the gate compressed is the way and few there be that find it those are the faithful words of the lord jesus christ so it should not be surprising that most people are not interested in the gospel you cherish and they are lost that's paul's point right he, he makes an evaluation he says that the word of the cross is foolishness to whom to those who are perishing. My mom had a little proverb. I would tell her what the other kids were doing. And she used to say to me, maybe your mom said to you as well, I'll, I'll be surprised if none of you heard it. If they jump off the Brooklyn, Brooklyn Bridge, will you jump off too? Of course, the answer is no. And I've used that. I had a man. Who, who was concerned, he, he, he was telling me, well, if I, if I believe the gospel, he said, I'm basically putting all my family into hell. And my answer to him is, yes, people are going to hell. I'm not going with them. I don't care if it's my dearest relatives. I'm not going with them. And that's what Paul is telling us. The word of the cross is foolishness but only to those who are perishing. 
They are on their way to hell. It doesn't matter how nicely they dress. It doesn't matter how rich they are. It doesn't matter how successful they seem. It doesn't matter how many friends they have on Facebook. It doesn't matter. They're perishing. That's, they are unbelieving because they are perishing and they are perishing because they are unbelieving. They regard the cross as foolishness. And they are actually already in the clutches of Satan. Look with me for a moment at that passage in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. Because the same Paul, speaking to the same church, makes an evaluation of these very same people here. In 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 3. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And why are they perishing? Well, they're perishing because of their unbelief, but there's more. In whose case? The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan already has them. They don't know God. They have never seen the glory of his goodness and grace. They don't believe the gospel. So here's a, a question. Is this you? Are you here this evening hearing the word of God and telling yourself, I had a man one time, he did this, worked with me, and he said, you know what? I kind of believe, I kind of agree with the Pharisees and the scribes. Well, it wasn't surprising to me because he was an unconverted, ungodly man. So the Pharisees seemed right to him. And maybe sometimes you think, well, I understand why people say the gospel is foolishness. They don't believe it. It doesn't make sense to them. I understand that maybe it's because it doesn't make sense to you. And you don't believe the gospel. If you don't believe the gospel, then you're going to side with the world. You may even give the gospel some kind of a verbal agreement, a polite hearing I've had many people say, oh yeah, I, I, I love the gospel. This is a good message. The gospel is true. But the question is, have you ever repented of your sins and looked to the Lord Jesus Christ for saving grace? That's the only proper response to a gospel. The gospel of God. So, that's how the world looks at the gospel. As Paul says, the word of the cross is foolishness. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But now we have the purposes of God. Same verse, verse 18. The purposes of God. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the other side of Paul's contrast. The purposes and actions of God. God uses the proclamation of the gospel to save his people from their sins. In that 2 Corinthians passage, I'm not going to read it at this point, but you may remember that God, who caused light to shine out of darkness, in the beginning, when there was no light, God said, let there be light. The God who made light shine out of darkness is the one who is shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
That's God's action. That's God's purpose. It, it has been God's purpose to use the proclamation of the gospel to save his people from their sins. They are delivered from Satan's blinding influence. They are delivered from the traps. You think about it this way, as if you were walking up Flatbush Avenue and every square, every square of cement has a trap. A bear trap or an, uh, an IED, uh, one of those things that blows up when you step on it. It has some kind of trap and it's all over Flatbush Avenue. I didn't say anything to Pastor Tate who drove me here, but as we went along the road to Flatbush Avenue, there were traps all along the way. Traps all along the way. People who are saying in their dress, in their manner, join us. Come with us to hell. And that is what Christians are delivered from. They are delivered from Satan's blinding influence. They are delivered from the traps of the world. They come to know God. They are delivered from sin's bondage. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. We still have to wrestle with our sins and fight with our sins. But we are delivered from sin's bondage. We don't have to sin. We don't have to, by God's grace. And through the preaching of the gospel, the power of God is exerted to deliver believers from these very things. The gospel works an inner transformation. It causes a man or woman, a boy or girl, to be born again by the word of truth, the living and abiding word of God. The work of gospel preaching brings men and women, boys and girls, into contact with the gospel that works an inner transformation. When I was a boy, when I was a young teen, I, I used to do some very stupid things. I used to take money off of my mother's dresser. I used to do things, and, and sooner or later, my mom would find something out, and I would... I would get my due punishment. And after my mother took a little bit out of my hide, I would lie in my bed and I would say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn over a new leaf. Now, I only said that because that's what people said. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. Tomorrow, I'm going to be a different person. The problem was the next morning, I was the same sinful boy with the same bondage to my sins. And only the gospel can make that transformation. And it can. Why? Because it's God's power. The same gospel that's despised by the world is God's power. And he ordains to save people by the gospel. So the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And one of the interesting things about the gospel is even when people don't entirely understand it, it is still God's power objectively. 
There was a story that was told recently when I was sitting in church listening about a man who was a thief. God was pleased to convert the thief and save him, but he, he had done only one thing all his life, steal. And he was tor tormented by this thought. He said, I'm a Christian now. I don't want to steal. I shouldn't steal. But he didn't trust himself. And then he went to a church, and they had the Ten Commandments listed on the church wall. And he read that, that one commandment, Thou shalt not steal. And he, he thought it was a promise. He thought God was promising him, you will not steal. And he misunderstood. But you know, there's a sense in which that's true. God has promised us that we will be delivered from our sins. We're not under the law in that compelling force whereby the whole world lies. Well, that's the contrast between the word of the cross, the eyes of men, and the purposes of God. Second point this evening, God's reaction to the conventional wisdom of the world. We know what the world thinks about the gospel. It's foolishness to them. They won't embrace it. They won't believe it. Well, God's policy has been and is to reject man's unbelieving wisdom and rendering it ineffective. God rejects the impression of the world, the opinion of the world, and he goes further, he makes it ineffective. Notice the language of verse 20. Here Paul is quoting Isaiah chapter 29. We'll go there in a moment. When Paul wants to establish his point, he says, for it is written. So here's the evidence. I, God, will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. They, so the, the, the worldling says, I'm going to use wisdom. I'm going to use eloquence. I'm going to get people to believe what I want them to believe. And God says, uh-uh, no. You're not going to save them. You're not going to release them. You're not going to improve them. His rejection, his reaction to the conventional wisdom of the world is to make it ineffective. Oh, there it is. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside. Paul is referring to Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 14. I invite you to turn there. Isaiah 29, 14. Now this, this particular verse is the verse that Paul is referring to, and it's actually one of the things Paul does is he has in his brain the context. The Jews were great at memorizing scripture so that when you quoted a verse of scripture, they could remember the context. They could remember the verses before and the verses after. That was the kind of mind Paul had. Unfortunately, evangelicals often just memorize isolated verses and don't remember the context. But Paul knows the context of Isaiah 29. And here is the verse, Behold, therefore I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise will perish, and the discernment of this discerning will be concealed. So God says, okay, you're going to put your confidence in your wisdom? You're going to put your confidence in your ability to communicate? God says, I'm wiping it 
out. I'm going to set it aside. The, the section actually begins at chapter 28. You look back at the beginning of chapter 28, it starts this way. Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and to the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley of those who are overcome with wine. It is. It begins with woes. He is condemning Israel's scheming ways. They're going to go to the Assyrians. The Assyrians are coming in judgment. Israel thinks we're going to escape judgment. We're going to, we're going to be able to escape it. We're not going to trust God. We don't need to trust God because we're so smart that we get out of judgment. So they refuse to trust God. Instead, they make an agreement with Egypt. Chapter 30. Verses 1 and 2. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine, and make an alliance but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt, your humiliation. God says it's not going to work. You're not going to escape the judgment of God. Your wisdom, he says, I'm going to nullify. That's his point. God speaks against their willful blindness and threatens to deepen it into true blindness. It's like Romans 1 our world has refused to have God in its knowledge, and therefore God gave them up to a reprobate mind. That's what was happening in Israel. They're making plans, but not God's plans. They're putting their trust in their ability to escape judgment, but it doesn't work. And again, if you're thinking that you have a clever way to make your life work apart from God's gospel, you need to understand something. God is against it. Remember what Peter quotes. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So whenever you think, I got a plan, I know how to make it work. If that is not God's way, if that's not part of God's gospel way, you're fighting a losing battle. You're fighting against God. And what God does with the proud is he nullifies their wisdom. So you might as well give up ungodly plans. They will not work. They'll only make your life more miserable. They'll only bring you into greater judgment from God. And that is what God promises to do. God promises to bring scheming human wisdom to nothing. That's what God does. The same will be true for all the people. For the Corinthians, if they think that they will appeal to eloquent wisdom of the world, God says, I set that stuff aside. I knock that stuff down. I make it invalid. That's what God does. The refusal to take God's message of Christ seriously and to make an excuse for unbelief will be given up to a reprobate mind undergoing the wrath of God. 
And you have to seriously think about that. What will it take? What will it take for men to give up the independence of God and their commitment to sin? It's self-destroying. Well, that's what God says here in our text. God's reaction to the conventional wisdom of the world is to defeat it, to undermine it, to destroy it. And then my last point already. Paul extends his challenge to a defeated foe. This is the failure of gospel despisers. It begins with a difference of value between the wisdom of the world and God's gospel. It continues with God's commitment to destroy and undermine confidence in mere human wisdom. And Paul believes it. Paul believes it so much that he extends his challenge in verse 20 to a defeated foe. Because Paul says, it doesn't really matter what the state of culture is today. It doesn't really matter what direction people think they're moving in. They are defeated in their rejection of the gospel. That's verse 20. So that after Paul quotes Isaiah 29, 14, he extends a challenge. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? And yes, a fourth question. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul is the champion of questions. You go to Romans and you hear Paul asking question after question. They are volleys. They are shots, as it were. Arrow shot at our unbelief. These questions are powerful. So, where are those who are thought to represent the cream of the intellectual crop? The smartest men of the age. The wise man. Where is the wise man? It, it was a general term for a man who was regarded as especially intelligent. It says, where are they? Where's the scribe? That's the Jewish expert. The man who studied the Old Testament law of God day and night. And he's thought to be an expert. Where's the debater? The Gentile philosopher. The champion of Greek philosophical thought. Now, Paul is not calling them so he can argue with them. He's not saying, okay, let's have a debate. That's not the point. His challenge is, where has their so-called wisdom left them? God has shown them to be foolish because they have not come up with the solutions, any solutions to the dilemmas that they face. Even, even though they had the Old Testament, the scribe of Paul's day had not arrived at faith in Jesus Christ. The Jewish leaders rejected him, and especially the message of the cross. They were far from salvation. The Greeks also had not arrived at wisdom. Verse 21, we haven't gotten there yet, but we will. Verse 21, God, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. That's where they ended up. They ended up in ignorance about God, the most, well, 
the one important being in the whole universe, the one who made it all, they did not come to the knowledge of God. Perhaps Paul was still thinking of Athens when he wrote 1 Corinthians. And he, uh, he addresses, remember, the Athenian philosophers. And he says, I, I, as I went about your city, I, I realized you're very religious. That was kind of a tongue-in-cheek rebuke. Very superstitious. Because I found in your temples an idol to an unknown God. And what you worship in ignorance, that I declare to you. You haven't learned who God is. And that is the, that is the great point. <coughs> Morally, Greek philosophy had not arrived at any solid ground for morality. And in terms of their understanding of the God of the universe, they had not come to know God. And they admitted it. That's why they had the unknown God, altar to the unknown God. It was, it was a plague in Athens. And they called the wise men, the philosophers, and they said, there's a God who's offended with you and you don't know him. So you need to make an altar to that God. But we don't know that God. Well, make an altar to the unknown God. And they're admitting, we don't know God. He's ch chastening us. He's judging us, but we don't know God. We don't know if he exists. We don't know what to do. The Greek religions made it plain that their religious philosophy did not provide any basis for morality. The Greek philosophers were famous for decrying the immorality of the world, how wicked the world was, but they had no answer. They had no morality. They had no reason for any particular behavior. And you see that in the culture of America today. Morality is gone. And the movers and the shakers are worried about it. What's happening to our society is crumbling beneath our feet. What's the answer? Well, it's always money. Pour more money. When I was a boy, we lived in Brownsville, right? And the answer was, move the people out of Brownsville. Move them to Staten Island. Give them nicer places. The problem with people is they don't have nice places to live. That's why they joke their places. Move to Staten Island. Within 10 years, children with guns were shooting out the bulbs in the hallway. Because money is not the answer. Education, equal education is not the answer. The Greeks had no, no valid religion to the meaning of life. You know what it was? They had two extremes. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Or suppress all appetites. You had the Stoics and you had the Epicureans, the two Greek philosophers. They said, the Stoics said, don't allow your emotions to be exhibited. Face your fate with calmness. If, if you die, if you see death staring you in the face, just bear it, with, as the British would say, with a stiff upper lip. And no one had any reason to say anything better. No one had the key. 
That's why the Athenians were always interested in hearing something new because they didn't have any answers. Well, that's what Paul is addressing in the Corinthian world. That's what Paul was addressing in the Roman world in Romans chapter 1. So Paul tells us in our passage that there is a contrast, a great contrast between the cross and the eyes of men and the purposes of God. He says that God has a reaction to the conventional wisdom of the world. He sets it aside. He nullifies it. He shows its naked folly. And Paul extends his challenge to a defeated foe in verse 20. Well, what is the... What are the applications for us? I have a couple of applications to conclude this evening. Surely, we should say that our generation is no different from previous generations in the most important issues of life. Our culture has no more sense, in fact, much less sense, and the Athenian philosophers and the wise men of the Corinthian age. We are more educated. More people can read in the United States. Far more than we're able to read in the days of the Apostle Paul. We're more educated. We're more sophisticated. We're more scientific. We have harnessed the creation. We've wiped out Many, uh, many plagues that destroyed former generations. And we're more technological. You can get a cell phone, and on that cell phone, you can not only call somebody, but you can email somebody, you, you can text somebody, and you can check your balances at the bank for somebody. And you can keep your shopping list and see the, the lowest price of gases in a, in, in a 25-mile radius around you. All that stuff we can do today simply on the little electronic device in our pockets. And what has it all gotten us with the unbelief of our generation that does not know God? Just... I'm I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, so don't take me seriously. Just look at TikTok. Viral TikTok videos with the ridiculous crazy things that people are willing to do and actually harm themselves. This is the generation that does not know God and does not want to know God. Look at our educators, our entertainers, the popular religious people. Look at them. You know that there are people who claim to be Bible-believing Christians. I read an article just this week, handed to me by a Christian educator whom I trust a lot. It was a man who claimed to be a pastor, claimed to believe the Bible. He wrote at the head of his paper, I take the Bible seriously, and I hope you do too. But then he goes on to tell you about how God has gay, bisexual, transgender children. And he wants you to treat them like brothers and sisters. Where's the wisdom? 
folly in the extreme. I'm a male. Every single cell in my body says male in the chromosomes of every single cell. So you can look at my face. The doctors can examine me. They know I'm a male. But somebody has determined that I don't have to be a male. I can be a girl. Or I can be a uh, non-binary individual. Now that means asexual. That's, that's the wisdom of today. It's being promoted by our government. It's being shoved down our throats. What answers do they have? Because they don't know God and they will not believe the gospel. And that's what they're saying. We don't know God in our culture. Atheism, agnosticism, schools of comparative religion. The promotion of pagan myths. People say we, when we teach civilization, we don't want Western civilization, which is responsible for the Christian religion. We don't want that at the heart of our curriculums. That's what they're saying in colleges. If you, go, if you hope to go to college, get ready. That's what's going to be forced down your throat. In education, men say that we should not allow Christianity to have a voice is hostility to the Christian heritage. And where does it get them? Right in the mess we're in. They have no real answers. Crime. I read articles a couple of months ago where it said that they said, when somebody comes in to rob a store, don't stop them, don't resist them, don't arrest them. Let them take whatever they want. What folly. Just let them empty your shelves. Have no answer to crime. They have no answer to the social ills. They don't have no answers to substance abuse. They don't even really have any answers to prejudice. They don't know how to teach people not to hate people of a different shade, much less a different color. Sexual abuse and deviation, AIDS, child abuse. That's the world without the gospel. That's the world without the gospel. And unless our generation turns from unbelief in God, they will only see these problems escalate and our society continue to crumble. And I wonder, you know, people say it couldn't get worse. I wish that were true. The history of the world says differently. And so, uh, I speak especially to you who are young. You mustn't jump off the Brooklyn Bridge with all these people who reject the gospel. Make sure that you deal with your soul in the terms of gospel grace. You know what happens when you ignore God, when you suppress God? You don't, you don't stay where you are. 
want you to understand, young people. You don't stay where you are. You think, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna become a Christian, but I'm not gonna go with all those crazy people. Well, let's hope not. But here's the problem. When you ignore God and you refuse to worship God, you know what God does? God gives men up. You don't stay right where you are. You always get worse. That may not be a very nice message, but it's a message joined to the gospel. So you can turn from your unbelief and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you may be sure that he is able to save you to the uttermost. And don't, don't listen to people who may sound good or leading you into unbelief. Don't, don't buy it. Those are the people who are going to drag you to hell. That's true on the corporate level and the individual level. Last thing I want to say, and then we're done is the awful danger of playing head games with God. Playing games with God. I worked in the corporate world for many years, and I had people trying to play head games with you. And they tried to turn your head around and confuse you and tell you that you have to be a worldling. I had a lady one time tell me. She asked me about this movie. Never saw it. This movie, never saw it. She said, Frank, you need to get with it. And my response was, no, I don't. Don't have to go that way. I don't have to. You play head games with men. Play head games with God. You can, you can play head games with people a lot. But don't try button up against God. It's a losing proposition. Don't pretend with God and his word. You say, I don't understand the gospel. Fine. Ask questions about from people who know the gospel. Ask questions. But don't mock God. Don't tempt him to blind you. It was a time when Jesus offended the Pharisees, you know? Said things they didn't like to hear. And the Pharisees, the, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, do you know that the Pharisees offended at what you said? And Jesus' response was this. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. Will you follow a blind guide? Went to the Grand Canyon, my wife and I did. Big hole in the ground in Arizona. I had a tour guide. Thankfully, he wasn't blind because you know what happens to blind people following blind guides. They fall into the pit. So you, don't mock God. Don't pretend you don't understand. Find out the gospel. Examine the gospel. Learn the gospel well and believe the gospel. And the God who is able to save to the uttermost will save your soul. Let's pray. Amen. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are. Many of us here in this place can remember when the gospel was foolishness to us, when we didn't even understand what we didn't understand. And we thank you that in your loving kindness and mercy, 
you cause the light to shine into our hearts, the light of the gospel. And we pray, our Father, that you would give you will give to us all greater confidence in the gospel. Help us, our Father, when we're facing unbelief before us, in our relatives, in our friends, in our acquaintances. Help us to believe in your gospel because it is your power. Help us not to be ashamed of the gospel, not to be ashamed of the Lord Jesus, but help us to aggressively proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus and be pleased to show your power in saving sinners. We pray for the children the young people in this church, that you will have mercy upon them, that they will not follow after former generations who just melted into the woodwork and went in the way of the world and condemned themselves to hell. Please be merciful to our children, our grandchildren, and save them from their sins. We can't do it, Father. We will witness we will urge them, but you are the one who must shine into their hearts. And we pray you would do this and glorify your compassion and grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.